The Crisis Next Door, a weekly report on the biggest conflicts around the world with host Jason Brooks. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. The U.S. killed Iran's top military commander, Qasem Soleimani, and Iran responded by firing missiles at two U.S. bases in Iraq, although no U.S. troops were killed. Is this a one-and-done scenario? Or does Iran have more in store for the U.S.? Joining the crisis next door to discuss the situation is Suzanne Maloney, Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and a Senior Fellow in the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy. Suzanne, thanks for joining the crisis next door. Thanks, and great to be with you. President Trump just wrapped up his press conference saying that the U.S. eliminated the world's top terrorist in Qasem Soleimani, running down a long list of accusations saying that Soleimani was planning new attacks before the U.S. stopped him. He says the U.S. sent a powerful message to terrorists. Do you think that they will listen to this? Well, I think that the message was heard loud and clear from Tehran, that the United States is prepared to uh, assume some risk and to um, take action that is fairly disruptive of its capacity to extend its influence around the region. Of course, the Iranians have their own way of making their uh, views felt, which is what we've seen over the course of the past 24 hours with missile attacks on Iraqi bases with significant American personnel and, and military force. And that was a very interesting response from Iran. No casualties caused by this. How do you interpret Tehran's response? Did you think that Iran is done? No, I don't think Iran is done, but I think we're, we're sort of entering a new phase. Um, this was what the Iranians needed to do um, to satiate a, a, a really profound sense of public outrage and, um, uh, I think, dislocation among the leadership that, that this was even possible uh, to take out someone of that significance um, uh, who had a real public following as well, uh, demanded some kind of quick, immediate action. But they did it in a way that appears to have been designed to avoid a quick spiral of escalation toward conventional bilateral conflict, a, you know, a real war with the United States, which um, I think is, is useful and important. Um, neither side really wants to get into a full-fledged shooting match, but at the same time, um, I, I am highly skeptical that this is the end of the Iranian response. Um, they will shift now to their comfort zone, which is typically around uh, use of proxies and support of terrorist organizations to, to punch back um, in areas where they see opportunities, areas where the United States might be vulnerable, and they'll punch back against our allies as well. Before we get more into the future responses from Iran, let's take a moment to look at Qasem Soleimani. Just who was he and just how powerful was he in Iran and the Middle East? Well, he was the commander of the Iranian Quds Force, which is the division of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, the most important and influential part of the Iranian military. The Quds Force is responsible for Iran's overseas uh, engagement with uh, militia groups, with proxy organizations, and with terrorist organizations. Um, Qasem Soleimani, in that role, had been responsible for managing Iranian relationships with Hezbollah over many years, but also has become the architect of an expanding Iranian footprint across the Middle East with very direct engagement in the counter-ISIS campaign, 
as well as in the efforts to try to salvage Bashar Assad's uh, position in Syria. Qasem Soleimani uh, essentially orchestrated a, uh, a, 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 the development of an expeditionary transnational Shia militia force comprised primarily of South Asians, uh, Pakistanis and Afghans who were recruited, as well as existing militias in Iraq and Lebanon. Um, and it was by coordinating these fighters that uh, Soleimani was able to keep Bashar Assad in power and obviously fuel what has been an incredibly devastating and inhumane war in Syria. He's also responsible for Iran's expanding position in Yemen, as well as the long-standing relationships with various uh, militant groups that are uh, aimed against Israel. Which one of those proxy networks do you think is the biggest threat to the U.S. and its allies? Is it even possible to categorize them as far as the threats, as, as which one could be worse than the other? I think the near-term threat is in Iraq, um, because not only did we kill Qasem Soleimani, but we killed one of the uh, heads of the most important Shia militias and partners of the Iranians in Iraq. Uh, and those militias have uh, immense uh, re reach across Iraq, both in terms of military capability as well as in terms of political influence. Um, we've seen uh, how violent that uh, an intensified um, insurgency in Iraq can look at this is again where Soleimani was directly responsible for the deaths of at least 600 Americans as a result of the his involvement with these groups and the um, provision of to, of the kind of IEDs that resulted in such terrible injuries and deaths to American servicemen and other personnel in Iraq over the course of of the now 15 plus year war there. Um, and so if we see these groups step up their attacks um, on American presence, on uh, other international forces in Iraq, in Iraq then I think um, it's going to be very dangerous, and it's obviously very destabilizing for the Iraqi government as well. Iraq's parliament passed a resolution which would boot the U.S. military from the country, although Sunni and Kurdish lawmakers sat out the vote. If the U.S. did leave, would this open Iraq back up to sectarian bloodshed? Well, I think that's almost um, assured at this stage, um, both the, the expectation that we are moving toward some position of departure, the vote didn't make it uh, inevitable, but I think the politics of the situation in Iraq uh, make it increasingly likely. Uh, and that is unfortunately uh, hard to envision that uh, that, will, that can transpire without some impact on the internal security situation in Iraq. It's worth noting that over the course of several months, uh, Iraqis in different parts of the country have been coming to the streets to protest against their own government protesting both corruption as well as Iran's influence. Uh, there's been a really vicious attempt to repress those protests, um, largely led by the Shia militias, and I expect that repression um, will intensify, and of course that will have a, a, a backlash, which we've seen before, in the formation of, of other armed groups trying to push back against the repressive arm of the state. And so it's likely to, to get much worse uh, within Iraq internally. It's interesting. You mentioned those protests in Iraq. We also had protests in Iran and saw videos out of Iran showing those wide boulevards packed with Iranians in support of Soleimani after his death. But in late 19, those Iranian protesters were protesting their own government, which led to a brutal crackdown on the demonstrators. Do you think the Soleimani killing hurts Iran's protest movement at all? 
Well, I think it was, you know, the Iranian government has used the death uh, of someone who had some genuine um, popular support around the country simply because he was seen as taking the fight outside Iran and directly to the enemies of the country rather than putting Iran, Iranians at risk once again of uh, something as catastrophic as the invasion they experienced in 1980 by Saddam Hussein's forces. Uh, and so, you know, his, his, his public persona was very deliberately cultivated as almost a confidence-building measure for Iranians, and, and he had a, a very telegenic presence. And so, you know, there was some genuine um, affection or at least respect for the man um, and I think there's also some genuine outrage, um, even among those who who might uh, dislike this regime in Iran, uh, about the Americans simply, you know, using a drone to strike a senior Iranian general. Um, this is a highly nationalistic country, and so it's it's not difficult to tap into that, um, particularly for a regime that has, uh, you know, has has done quite a, a good job of orchestrating big public pageants of support ever since the, the 79 revolution. Um, I don't think it, the death of Soleimani does anything to assuage the really profound dissatisfaction of ordinary Iranians um, with the, the circumstances that they find themselves in their country in. Um, they blame their own government. They blame the United States. Um, and uh, I'm sure that the sort of resentment on both sides will only deepen because there's really no way out of the economic crisis that Iran is facing until and unless there's some kind of breakthrough between Washington and Tehran, and that's further away today than ever. It didn't seem like Trump had negotiations in mind during his press conference. Uh, There have been some observers saying that the current moment could open a window for new talks. Did you hear anything from Trump indicating that he would be up for talks with Tehran? Well, I mean, he's, he, he ended, I think, on that note. It's a note. It's a point that he has emphasized repeatedly over the course of the past 18 months in particular. Um, but the reality is he took a very tough line. Um, he didn't appear to be um, sort of putting anything on the table as an early overture toward the, the Iranian leadership that might enable them to take him up on the offer. What he basically said is, you know, give up everything that you're doing that we have a problem with for very good reasons, um, and and we're happy to, to develop a new relationship with you. Um, that hasn't been appealing to Iran, um, as he's been saying it over the course of, of the past few years, and I suspect it's even less appealing today in the aftermath of uh, the Soleimani strike and the response. You're listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks, and we're talking about the confrontation between the U.S. and Iran with Suzanne Maloney, Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and a senior fellow in the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy. Trump called on several European nations and China to break away from the Iran nuclear deal that Trump pulled out of sparking the latest round of tensions with Iran. Do you see those countries doing that? I think it's highly unlikely, um, and, and unfortunately the Soleimani strike made it even less likely uh, because the Europeans have been seeking to do whatever they can to preserve their own investment in, uh, you know, what a deal that took more than a decade to negotiate um, and a crisis that was very urgent when it was, when it was uh, at its height. They don't want to see it re- reemerge. They don't want to see the nuclear threat 
um, back on the agenda as uh, a, a sort of near-term problem. But um, the reality is that I think there's very little that the Europeans can do to preserve the original deal, and um, they need to be focused on how to use this diplomatic moment and their ability to bridge, at least to some extent, both Washington and Tehran to try to find some kind of de-escalatory mechanism and engagement um, with an eye toward building that to real resolution of the, the conflicts between them. Trump also said that Iran must end its nuclear ambitions. What are the chances that happens? Well, I mean, this is a project that predates the Iranian Revolution that the Iranians uh, worked on in secret for 18 years before it was made public in 2002, that we now have uh, spent another 18 years (laughs) trying to contend with through diplomacy and sanctions. Um, I'm highly skeptical that, you know, Iran simply uh, hands over the keys to all of its uh, nuclear know-how and infrastructure uh, it's it's just the reality, unfortunately, that again, as Iran sees itself uh, pushed into a corner, I, I think that the likelihood is that the, their readiness to um, give up what they see as a as a necessary deterrent to American intervention um, is only going to be strengthened. When we consider what Iran's next steps might be in response to the U.S. killing of Soleimani, there's been a lot of talk about Iran's cyber warfare capabilities. Just how powerful are they? And if they had a list of cyber targets, what do you think they would be? Well, they've got a very highly developed technical capability. Um, and we know, at least in the past, that Iran has been, um, the finger has been pointed to Iran for responsibility for cyber attacks on, um, for example, the energy companies, state energy companies of the Gulf states in several cases as well as municipal infrastructure in the United States. So I think really anything goes um, in that respect. But, you know, ultimately the Iranians needed something that was public and attributable that, you know, provided some good visuals for them. They got that last night um, with the, the missile strikes on the various bases and facilities in Iraq. Um, they will uh, unroll, I think, over the long term, a, um, a, a campaign that will include cyber, but will probably go well beyond that to try to target American interests uh, and the Trump administration in particular in retaliation for this uh, t- attack on Soleimani. Worries have long been around that Iran would attack the oil supply line through the Strait of Hormuz in a bigger confrontation with the U.S. Oil prices did jump after the Soleimani strike, but they have since eased back. Do you think that the U.S. ramping up of shale production and becoming a bigger oil producer has lessened Iran's ability to impact the global oil supply than it would have, say, 10 years ago? Well, I think what the U.S. production has enabled Washington to do is to take steps that were previously inconceivable simply because of the sensitivity of oil prices around the world to anything that risked the oil coming out of the Gulf. And so, you know, even even as far back as 2010, when the Obama administration, in cooperation with the Europeans, began applying sanctions to Iranian oil sales and exports and transportation. That was something that had just simply been inconceivable until uh, other alternative sources of production, largely coming out of the United States, made it possible. Um, it's 
even more true today that we uh, don't need oil coming out of Iran. Um, the Trump administration has successfully pushed Iranian exports down um, far below anything achieved during the Obama administration. It's a debate about whether it's a few hundred thousand barrels that are getting smuggled out or maybe more than that, but it's still um, significantly 75-80% below um, what Iran's normal uh, pre-sanctions exports look like. Um, and the market really has absorbed that without any uh, any price spikes. And I think that's likely to continue to be the case um, if the Iranians were to target infrastructure that that really uh, provided posed a long-term threat to exports from Saudi Arabia or even Iraq. Um, it, it would bump the markets some, uh, but the reality is oil prices are fungible, and so um, you know anything that that causes uh, a supply disruption to even to non-American uh, buyers of or consumers of gasoline or, or oil um, will have an impact on the price of, of fuel and, and oil in this country as well. So we're never really independent. Were you surprised at all by the fairly muted response from the U.S. Uh, on the drone attacks on Saudi Arabia's oil facilities in September, which were pretty much the accusations were leveled at Iran for doing so? Uh, yeah, I think it was um, remarkable that uh, the administration didn't take the bait at that time. It was also quite uh, a notable strike because it demonstrated a higher degree of capability on the part of the Iranians and a, 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 a greater degree of, of um, risk tolerance than I think that we would have anticipated. Um, but now we see that both sides are willing to absorb some risk. Um, that even if the president wasn't going to be goaded into a quick reaction, he was he is prepared um, to take military action against Iran that risks escalation. Um, and this is what's worrisome. I think there's brink, brinksmanship on both sides. Um, there's an aversion to a, a full-fledged military conflict on both sides. But uh, there's also a lot of capability to miscalculate on both sides. And so, um, you know, as this plays out over weeks and probably months ahead, the Iranians are going to focus on the vulnerability that Trump has in an election year to uh, both looking weak, but also um, to anything that would get him dragged into a war, given how um, weary of military conflict most Americans are today. Do you see this as a case of both sides realizing that they stand too much to lose if an actual war does break out? I think that's absolutely true. Um, but it's that delicate dance of um, pushing up to the brink of war by both sides uh, and avoiding an actual uh, outbreak that is difficult to orchestrate. Um, the Iranians need some kind of resolution. The president, I think, can declare victory and walk away um, with the sanctions imposed, with the kind of sense that uh, he's he's really put the Iranians in a corner. Um, I, I'm not sure the Iranians are capable of simply walking away at this point because they need some kind of a uh, an exit ramp from the devastating economic pressure they're facing. I can't even count how many World War III references I've seen regarding a potential conflict between the U.S. and Iran. Do you think that's hyperbole, or is that the specter we're facing if Iran and the U.S. were to go to war? Um, I don't, you know, I, I think it's hyperbole. Uh, I would, I have I, heard it quite a bit as well. Uh, both my kids came home from school last week and said, I hear we're in the beginning of World War III. 
Um, but I don't think we should underestimate how uh, how how terrible a full-fledged military conflict between the United States and Iran would be because it would inevitably entangle the entire region. It would directly impact energy supplies and therefore the global economy. Um, and there would be, uh, I think, a, a consequent uh, impact and acceleration, intensification of terrorist activity all around the world in a way that would probably uh, have impact for many years to come. Well, we could certainly hope that this current opening will provide a de-escalatory moment and that cooler heads will prevail between the U.S. and Iran. Suzanne, thank you so much for joining us here on The Crisis Next Door. Thank you. We've been joined by Suzanne Maloney, Deputy Director of the Foreign Policy Program at the Brookings Institution and a Senior Fellow in the Brookings Center for Middle East Policy. Thanks for listening to The Crisis Next Door. I'm Jason Brooks. Till next time. The Crisis Next Door with host Jason Brooks is produced weekly. If you have any thoughts for Jason, email him at tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com. Again, that's tcndpodcast at kcbsradio.com.